Section 23 of Essays on Art. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Max Reichlich. Essays on Art by Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. Translated by Samuel Gray Ward. Section 23. Simple imitation of nature, manner, style. It does not seem to be superfluous to define clearly the meaning we attach to these words which we shall often have occasion to make use of. For, however long we may have been in the habit of using them, and however they may seem to have been defined in theoretical works, still everyone continues to use them in a way of his own, and means more or less by them, according to the degree of clearness or uncertainty with which he has seized the ideas they express. Simple Imitation of Nature if an artist, in whom we must of course suppose a natural talent, in the first stage of progress, after having in some measure practiced eye and hand, turns to natural objects, uses all care and fidelity in the most perfect imitation of their forms and colors, never knowingly departs from nature, begins and ends in her presence every picture that he undertakes, such an artist must possess high merit, for he cannot fail of attaining the greatest accuracy, and his work must be full of certainty, variety, and strength. If these conditions are clearly considered, it will be easily seen that a capable but limited nature can in this way treat agreeable but limited subjects. Such subjects must always be easy to find. They should be seen at leisure and quietly imitated. The disposition that occupies itself in such works must be a quiet one, self-contained, and satisfied with moderate gratification. This sort of imitation will also be practiced by men of quiet, true, limited nature, in the representation of dead or still-life subjects. It does not by its nature exclude a high degree of perfection. Manner But man finds usually such a mode of proceeding too timid and inadequate. He perceives a harmony among many objects which can only be brought into a picture by sacrificing the individual. He gets tired of using nature's letters each time to spell after her. He invents a way, devises a language for himself, so as to express in his own fashion the idea his soul has attained, and give to the object he has so many times repeated a distinctive form, without each time he repeats it having recourse to nature itself, or even recalling exactly the individual form. Thus a language is created, in which the mind of the speaker expresses and utters itself immediately, and as in each individual who thinks, the conceptions of customary objects are formed and arranged differently so will every artist of this class see, understand, and imitate the outward world in a different manner, will seize its appearances with more or less observant eye, and reproduce them more accurately or loosely. We see that this species of imitation is applied with the best effect in cases where a great whole comprehends many subordinate objects. These last must be sacrificed in order to attain the general expression of the whole, as is the case in landscapes, for instance, where the object would be missed if we attended too closely to the details, instead of keeping in view the idea of the whole. Style When at last art, by means of imitation of nature, of efforts to create a common language and a clear and profound study of objects themselves, has acquired a clearer and clearer knowledge of the peculiarities of objects and their mode of being, oversees the classes of forms, and knows how to connect and imitate those that are distinct and characteristic, then will style reach the highest point it is capable of, the point where it may be placed on a par 
with the highest efforts of the human mind. Simple imitation springs from quiet existence and an agreeable subject. Manner seizes with facile capacity upon an appearance. Style rests upon the deepest foundations of knowledge, upon the essence of things, so far as we are able to recognize it in visible and comprehensible forms. The elaboration of what we have advanced above would fill whole volumes, and much is said upon the subject in books, but a true conception of it can only be arrived at by the study of nature and works of art. We subjoin some additional considerations and shall have occasion to refer to these remarks whenever plastic art is in question. It is easy to see that these three several ways of producing works of art are closely related and that one may easily run into the others. The simple imitation of subjects of easy comprehension, we will take fruits and flowers as an example, may be carried to a high point of perfection. It is natural that he who paints roses should soon learn to distinguish and select the most beautiful and seek for such only among the thousand that summer affords. Thus we have arrived at selection, although the artist may have formed no general idea of the beauty of roses. He has to do with comprehensible forms. Everything depends on varied arrangement and superficial color. The downy peach, the finely dusted plum, the smooth apple, the burnished cherry, the dazzling rose, the manifold pink, the variegated tulip, all these he can have at will in his quiet studio in the perfection of their bloom and ripeness, can put them in a favorable light. His eye would become accustomed to the harmonious play of glittering colors. Each year would give him a fresh opportunity of renewing the same models, and he would be enabled, without laborious abstraction, by means of quiet imitative observation, to know and seize the peculiarities of the simple existence of these subjects. In this way were produced the masterpieces of Ahausum and Rachel Rausch, artists who seem almost to have accomplished the impossible. It is evident that an artist of this sort must become greater and more distinguished if, in addition to his talent, he is also acquainted with botany. If he knows from the root up the influences of the several parts upon the expansion and growth of the plant, their office and reciprocal action, if he understands and reflects upon the successive development of leaves, fruit, flowers, and the new germ, by this means he will not only exhibit his taste in the selection of superficial appearance, but will at once win admiration and give instruction through a correct representation of properties. In this wise it might be said that he had formed a style, while on the other hand it is easy to see how such a master, if he proceeded with less thoroughness, if he endeavored to give only the striking and dazzling, would soon pass into mannerism. Simple imitation also labors in the antechamber that leads to style. In proportion to the truth, care and purity with which it goes to work, the composure with which it examines and feels, the calmness with which it proceeds to imitate, the degree of reflection it uses, that is to say, with which it learns to compare the like and separate the unlike, and to arrange separate objects under one general idea, will be its title to step upon the threshold of the sanctuary itself. If now we consider manner more carefully, we shall see that it may be, in the highest sense and purest signification of the word, the middle ground between simple imitation of nature and style. The nearer it approaches with its more facile treatment to true imitation, and, on the other side, the more earnestly it endeavors to seize and comprehensively express the character of objects, the more it strives by means of a pure, lively and active individuality to combine the two, the higher, greater and more respectable it will become. But if such an artist ceases to hold fast by and reflect upon nature, he will soon lose sight of the true principles of art, and his manner will become more and more empty and insignificant.
in proportion as he leaves behind simple imitation and style. We need not here repeat that we use the word manner in a high and respectable sense, so that artists who, according to our definition, would fall under the denomination of mannerists, have nothing to accuse us of. It is only incumbent upon us to preserve the word style in the highest honor, in order to have an expression for the highest point art has attained or ever can attain. To be aware of this point is in itself a great good fortune, and to enter upon its consideration in company with sensible people a noble pleasure for which we hope to have many opportunities in the sequel. End of section 23